All right, so last week, Ken talked about how uh, God teaches us through our failures, right? God gives us a lot of tests in our life to test us and perfect us. God knows that we are stubborn enough, we are hard-headed enough that if we don't have some kind of challenge to see who God's nature and character, we're going to forget about him. And that's what kind of today is about. We're learning, we're going to learn what it means to remember the Lord. And today we're going to get to our first two judges, Othniel and Ehud. Here's a list of where all the judges are, uh, all 12 of them. They're all over the place, uh, but Othniel down in the southwest corner and Ehud just a little bit north and east of, of him. But to get where we're going, we have to go back to where we were last week in verses 5 and 6 of Judges chapter 3. And we're going to be in Judges chapter 3 the whole day. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. So what Israel ends up doing is adopting this good neighbor strategy, this go along to get along in the land of Canaan, which is completely contrary to what, obviously, what we've covered the last couple of weeks, what God had told them to do. He said, go in, conquer, push them out. Because there were lots of reasons uh, for the fidelity of their worship of Yahweh, they told us to do that. But instead, they do things like bond with them through family alliances. They intermarry. This is something, guys, that it, you can take and you can look at it and you can see it in all the wrong light. The reason God told them to, not to intermarry wasn't something racial. It wasn't something cultural. It was something purely spiritual. The people in the land of Canaan had no love for the Lord. They had no desire to follow him. They had no, no interest in him whatsoever, but they had every in interest in leading Israel to compromise so that they could avoid com uh, conquering. So they also followed suit in making political alliances. That's half of what the intermarriage was about. Hey, I won't fight you, you won't fight me, let's seal this with a marriage. That's really good marital policy. <laughs> and also, they decided to have common worship with the people. See, back in that day, and heck, even now, in our day, the outside non-believing culture is always going to say, sure, Christian, you can believe your Christian things as long as you believe my stuff too. We'll just wrap it into the fold. As long as you worship Caesar, as long as you're for whatever as well, you, you can uh, do your Christian thing. You can do your Jewish thing. You can do whatever. But the problem is we have an exclusive God because he's the one and true only God. So when he, the one and only God says, I'm all there is, it kind of makes sense to be faithful to him. And we also have all those things combined lead to a common morality with the people that do not know God or have any regard for his standards. I mean, isn't that how our relationships work? I can think back in the army. I had most of my good buddies in the army were non-believers by nature of where we were <laughs> and who we were. And 
I found myself over and over again, though they knew I was the Christian guy. They, they knew I was the Christian guy, but yet I would find myself laughing at some joke or like agreeing with some, you know, vitriol over somebody else in the, in the unit or whatever. And I would always come back and reflect on that and go, man, that was kind of gross and un- uncharacteristic of a Christian. But it was because of my fear of alienating my buddy who has no interest in God whatsoever that I caved. And don't we do that all the time? When we ally ourselves in marriage specifically or in our closest friend networks, we will inevitably compromise for fear of disrupting the relationship. And that's what Israel does over and over again. They see the wealth, the prosperity, they see the good-looking women, and they say, ah, they're not so bad. Let's go, let's just, you know, live amongst them. So they have this good neighbor strategy, and they canonize. But before God had warned us. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, he says, You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or a pillar. You shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And that's what the book of Judges displays. God's given them a commandment to be faithful to me and listen to what I have to say because I am the one true God. And if not, I'm gonna do this to you. And we're gonna see what that this is all throughout the book of Judges. And we're gonna see that we're still doing that today, even in our own walks and lives. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, Surprised by Joy. It says, God was to be obeyed simply because he was God. That God is to be revered, not because of what he can do to us or for us, but for who he is in himself. If we wonder why we should obey God, in the last resort, the answer is, I am. To know God is to know that our obedience is due to him. God is to be worshipped, not because of what he can do for us, not because of what I can gain out of it, But because of who he is, if he really is the one true only God, then it makes sense that that good God, that perfect God, that all-knowing God is giving us good advice. And when he tells us to do something, he means it. And man, what a comfort and joy that is. If the God of the universe knows me personally and loves me and gives me commands saying, if you do this, it'll go well for you, he means it. And we can rest in that. So Ken last week introduced the cycle, the sin cycle of the book of Judges. What we see, it's kind of a big toilet bowl. It starts off big and kind of slow, and then it just spins real fast down at the bottom. We have at the top our judges today that are men of good character, men who have really very little character flaws that we know of, all the way down to the bottom of the barrel. You know, we've got the brother that we're proud of and the cousin we don't claim as our, as our uh, family members. And we're going to see this play out today in the book with Othniel and Ehud. So the cycle begins. Israel sins. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Sheroth. See, what God calls evil is often different than what the world calls evil. 
Yes, the world will call murder and rape and stealing evil. But God will even call some of the good things in life that people will say, hey, that's, that's okay, that's good. He'll call those things evil because they're done in the worship of self or of some other God. See, there's a conflict between God's standard and our standard or God's standard and the world's standard. And I put it like this, you know, last night uh, when uh, my oldest son, Caleb, got home from school, he's nine years old, all right? He's the oldest of four. He's the big brother. He's helpful. He's a pretty smart kid, and he's a sweet boy. He wants to help all the time. But sometimes he makes decisions through nine-year-old boy's eyes that, you know, according to adult wisdom, is probably not going to work out. You know, in fact, oftentimes they hurt more than they help, right? So last night, he gets home from school, and my wife says, Caleb's got something to tell you. That never goes, that never goes well. That never starts well, and he's crying because he knows he's, he's messed up. Well, turns out, before math tests, sometimes they give math homework, right? Well, in the nine-year-old brain, if the homework's in the trash, then it didn't exist, No homework, no have to do homework. Turns out that's not the case in adult land. You get the homework, you got to do the homework before you do the test, you know. But in his brain, if it's, if it's in the trash, it's gone. And guys, let me, let me tell you, we all have a lot of nine-year-old boy in us. Whether it's something silly like, like throwing away our third grade homework or something serious, we all think that we can either get away with something or that our intellect somehow outmatches what God has said. And we justify things or we listen to the crowd and we're like, no, but it's okay for me right now. Now, what about a bunch of nine-year-old hogwash? Like that, we can never look to the world and the world's wisdom, we can't look to our wisdom and think that we can just, you know, brush things under the rug. No, those things matter. And they matter to God because you matter to God, right? God loves you and wants your best. So if we are looking to the world and their standard instead of God and his loving standard, see, the world is self-interested. God is interested in you. So we can look at God's revealed word. And trust it and know that God uh, has your best in mind. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. I want to drill down on that word forgot. Like, it's not just forgetting like mm, absent-minded. They knew who Yahweh was. The thing is they disregarded Yahweh. We do that, we do that often in our own in our own minds, in our own worlds, our own justification. We're like, I know you said that. I know that this show is trash, but I'm going to watch it anyway because it's pretty interesting. You know, I know I shouldn't have this relationship with this person of the opposite sex. It's not my wife. Uh, but, you know, I kind of like it. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to entertain it for a little bit. See, the people of Israel disregarded God. They said, sure, we'll keep you on our mantle, but we're not really going to engage with you. So they did what was right in their own eyes by following the culture 
and essentially abandoning God. That's what their sin was. Their sin wasn't necessarily moral. They were probably, a lot of them, very moral, upstanding people, members of their society, gave money to charity, were faithful to their wives, raised their kids to be men and women. But when they abandoned the Lord, when they disregarded him and relied on themselves and the people around them, they abandoned God, and that is what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Guys, I feel like there's a lot of us here that can relate to that. Maybe the life is going well for us. Maybe our kids are outstanding and successful. Maybe our wives are awesome. Maybe our parents are in good health. Maybe our business is going through the roof, yet we have no intimate relationship with the Lord. Guys, that's evil in God's sight. Daniel Block says, they exchanged the living God for figments of the depraved human imagination. It's not hard to see why they worshiped the gods of prosperity and the gods of sex. Do we not worship the gods of prosperity and sex today? They're still alive. The Baals and the Asheroth are still alive in our lives right now. So it's easy to forget. But see, God has called us to remember. God is so kind to us. He gives us all sorts of remembrance. Because we, he has purpose in that. Remembering is primarily a community event. But it's also a family event and a personal event. See, God gave us the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, which we are going to take this morning, and the people of the church. If you think you can be a solid, growing Christian without the church and without remembering God on a daily or whatever basis, then you are sorely wrong and you've missed your purpose and you've missed the idea behind being a Christian. The church is there for our good, for our encouragement in the faith, and for our remembrance of the God who saved us. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. How kind of him, how just brilliant of him to give us something tactile that we can take and remember him. And we do it together so that our faith is encouraged. But see, they forget, and the result is sin and suffering, or suffering and sorrow. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, which is like northeast Syria. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So they reaped what they sowed. God says, you want to be like them? I'm going to leave you to them. And thus fulfilling Leviticus 26 that we talked about before. God said, I'm going to do this if you do that. They did that. God fulfilled his promise. He said, I'm going to turn you over to them. So they invited the Lord's hand of discipline. See, Charles Spurgeon says, God never allows his people to sin successfully. Their sin will either destroy them or it will invite the chastening hand of God. Either way is a mercy of God. If God knows our hearts, our hearts are hard and unwilling to take correction, he's going to deal with that. He's going to say, all right, move on. 
Ananias and Sapphira learned that in the book of Acts really easily. They lied to the Holy Spirit. Their hearts were hard. God took them both out. Guys, you are here this morning today, whether you've been faithful to the Lord or not, by God's kindness and his mercy. And if you have not been faithful, then that means, praise God, his chastening hand can bring us back to him. And that's something to be thankful for. So he sold them. In the book of Judges, there's this language of giving and selling. And what we see is that it's always God doing the commerce. All right? He transfers ownership. Think of that. God is the king of the nation of Israel. All these disjointed tribes, all these immoral tribes, he is the king. And he says, you know what? You don't want to be managed by me. I'm going to transfer ownership temporarily to this other king. You don't want the true king? You can have a sub-king. And let's see how he treats you. So that brings us to the Lord's discipline. I've got a couple differences between the Lord's discipline and suffering in general. The discipline is meant to lovingly correct by yielding repentance and proper worship and has at its root unbelief and disobedience. Guys, this is what, the, what Israel is going to experience over and over again. This is what we can experience in our life. But not every bad thing that happens to us is the Lord's discipline. A lot of times we think, oh, business is not working out for me. Like this is, I'm never going to get under this. What did I do wrong? And in fact, I've heard it around the table saying, you've got cancer? What, what's wrong with you? That's not biblical. That, because suffering in general is a result of the fall. The Lord's discipline is meant to correct us. Suffering in general is meant, has all kinds of purposes, and it's not necessarily because you've done anything wrong. Think the book of Job. Job did nothing wrong. He was righteous before God's eyes, and yet his life went to shambles, right? But God used that. God's been encouraging millennia of his people through, through Job. So that leads, the Lord's discipline leads them to cry out to the Lord. See, God's design and his desire for people is to flourish. God made us to be in wonderful fellowship with him and for things to go well. But because of sin in this world, that doesn't always work out. And because of sin in our own lives, he has to bring us to the point of needing him. Because flourishing is only going to happen in the right way, with the right relationship, with the right God. Any other God is going to be a sorry substitute. And we see that over and over and over again in the book of Judges and the rest of the Bible. I want to see that when God disciplines us, it's his kindness to us. Just like with your children. It is a kindness to give them a spanking and say, don't run into the street again. I told you not to. It will save your life. That is your kindness as a parent to that child. We've heard that over and over and over again. If you've ever been in the church, that, uh, it's come up. That's God's kindness to us. So they were reminded where their help comes from, right? So God sends a deliverer. And they're reminded that it is the Lord who gives us our help. So they cried out to the only one who they knew from Exodus who would rescue them. But is this repentance? 
See, like the, the jailer told uh, Paul, he's like, what do I do to believe? He says, repent and believe, and you will be saved. Is this that kind of re- repentance? Is this that turning? I don't know. Uh, the commentators are kind of 50-50 on it. Like, I had, God saved them, so maybe it is repentance. It's like, but God's also merciful. Maybe he just saved them because they cried out to him. I'll tell, uh, I'll tell you this, at least, that when we come to the point of knowing that our only help comes from the Lord, God is often merciful and kind to us and will save us. See, our deliverance, our new life, our revival, our redemption can only come when we seek our rescue from God. When we seek our rescue in alcohol, when we seek our rescue in women, when we seek our rescue in prosperity, in the New Deal, when we seek our help anywhere else, it will always come up short. It will be unsatisfying and it will not lead to peace. Ken shared this verse last week. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret because our help comes from the Lord, whereas worldly grief produces death. And through this deliverance, we're going to see that God's character is revealed, that he is a covenant keeper, that unilateral covenant that God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. It had nothing to do with them. And God is rich in mercy. So the Lord raised up a deliverer. Like the Exodus, God remembers his promise. Remember, covenant keeper. And he mercifully delivers. That's great for us. This quote from David Guzik is wonderful. How rich the mercy of God. That no matter how far you've gone, whatever you've done, God will forgive you today if you cry out to him for mercy and forgiveness. And guys, that is the truth for you. Whether you've been in the faith for a long time, but you're steeped in sin, or if you have never given your life to Christ, God is merciful, and that no matter what you've done, if you cry out to him for mercy, for forgiveness, and for a true relationship with him, he will save today and give us his righteousness. So the first two judges... They're both from good stock. They're not going to be some wild people like uh, we'll see later on in the book of Judges. One is an expected leader and one's kind of a less expected leader. But they're both raised up by God. Othniel, he's the ideal man from the ideal clan. He is a Judahite. When they said, who shall go up first? The Lord said, Judah. And who do we have first? We have Othniel. And he's from a faithful family. Remember, he is the son-in-law of Caleb. You know, the spy that was with Joshua, that was faithful to the Lord, trusted that God was going to do what he said he was going to do, lived throughout the wilderness, hung out with Joshua as long as Joshua was in charge in the conquest of Canaan. This is that guy. He's from a family like that, who knew the power and the will of God. And he was also a proven military leader, as Judges chapter 1 said. So this is where he operated around the land of Debir. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Mesopotamia was an empire. 
This wasn't just a small band of, of people coming to steal, kill, and destroy. This was an empire con- conquering entire territories, northeast Syria down to southern Israel. But by the Spirit of the Lord, they had victory. See, what are God's prerequisites for a deliverer? That they are raised up by Yahweh and empowered by Yahweh. Does that sound familiar for the Christian walk? Guys, if you are in the faith, if you have trusted Christ, God has called you or raised you up for a purpose, and he's empowered you by his Holy Spirit. So the spirit of the Lord empowerment was not based on anything that the deliverer did, just like it is not based on anything that you have done. No faithfulness to the Lord before salvation counts for anything. But it's the Lord that brings you to him. But it was according to God's mercy and divine will. And it sweet that God used people to rescue people so that they could see that it was God and not the man who delivers. And the Lord gave Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. See, the victory is always the Lord's and not the man. A couple of verses that point this out in chapter 3 of Acts, it is uh, Peter who says, after he heals a man, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? He says, it wasn't me, it was God. And not by might or nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts in the book of Zechariah. See, God's always showing that it's me, look to me. It's me that's doing this. And then those of us who get to be a part of it, those of us who get to be empowered by the Holy Spirit for God's work, get to reap the, the faith benefit of having seen God at work personally in a situation that we on our own merit, couldn't do. So then the land had rest for 40 years. See, it was the land that had rest. It was for a generation. God allowed the people to be freed from outward oppression. God allowed the people to be able to grow their crops, experience some kind of peace. And they learned that if Yahweh can deliver Israel from an emperor from Mesopotamia, he can rescue them from any foe. But the problem is, they tend to forget. So the land had rest for the life of the judge, uh, but not necessarily the people. That temporary salvation, and that salvation is temporary, from outward oppression did not equate to spiritual rest because of their faithfulness. And that's why we have Ehud. Same song, second dance. It's like Groundhog Day all over. And just like all the other judges, Ehud's kind of a nobody. There's nothing special about him other than the fact that God chose him. Guys, let's be real here. There's not a lot special about me other than the fact that God chose me. There's nothing special about you. There's 7 billion people on this planet except for the fact that God chose you. God, in his loving kindness, opened your eyes to believe. And then God can use you in a mighty way. So they start the cycle over again. Because victory doesn't last forever. It says they did evil in the sight of the Lord again. 
relying on past faithfulness. I want to see this. This is easy for us to do because living a faithful life is oftentimes hard. It often requires time, energy, resources from us that we're not really willing to give. But victory doesn't last forever because relying on past faithfulness, relying on past deliverance, leads us to a, a false mindset that leads us to future defeat. Isn't that right? You know, anytime I rest on, on my laurels, you know, I first viewed pornography when I was 12 years old. So that became a habit pretty quick for a young man for a long time. If I rest on the fact that the Lord delivered me, and any time that I have, that's been the time when I've been most susceptible for failing. Because it's the daily pursuit of the one true God that leads to victory. Not any sort of self-will on my part, any sadness on my part. But it's when I turn to the Lord and say, God, you are my treasure. It is not, it's not what's on that screen. It's not what I see in front of me. Relying on the past will lead me to failure. And everybody I know that has had delivery from pornography has said the same thing. That if, oh, it's been four years for me. Well, congrats. Hopefully in God's mercy, there'll be another four. And that's how our sin is, whether it's alcoholism or workaholism, when our idols are anything but God, we tend to forget God. We slide down that path and that's why we have to come together as a church. That's why we have to come together in small groups. That's why we have these tables, so that we can be reminded of God's deliverance, God's faithfulness. See, the past is not to be relied upon for success. The past is supposed to be relied upon for our encouragement for future faithfulness. Because God delivered me four years ago, six years ago, 20 years ago, I know that God not only has the capacity, but the will to deliver me today and tomorrow. So they did evil what was in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, their next door neighbors, against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. It was eight years before with Mesopotamia, 18 years now. Think about where you were 18 years ago. That's a long time to be in subjugation. When you've had rest for 40 years, then 18 years of being oppressed by someone else. Because guys... Sin always bring, brings bondage, does it not? When we give ourselves over to the things that are ultimately going to be unsatisfying, they're going to pull us away and pull us away and pull us away until we're trapped by that sin. That's what sin does. It's a distraction from, from God. And the more distraction you can have, the further away you'll be from him. And how did it come to this? Who is to blame? I think it's kind of twofold here. 
It's the people that were in charge of leading worship, the people that were in charge of saying, men and women, this is wrong. When they stopped taking what they knew was true from the scripture, what they knew was true from God, when they got lazy or they just slacked off. When they stopped going to God for the people and for themselves, and also because of the parents. See, this faithfulness has a lot to do with how people are raised. Are they raised in a li- with a living and active faith? Or are they raised with head knowledge and a dead faith? Parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, if you, are, you very well could be the only Christian in your family. And it's your responsibility, it's your joy, it's your pleasure to be able to teach the faith because of showing your people that God is alive and well and using you and working in your life. That's what makes the faith sticky. The head knowledge is going to be a great foundation. The fact that my kids know every Bible story there is to know is going to be helpful and make it easier for them to believe, but unless they see it in my life, and they see, unless they see me depending on the Lord and the Lord's provision, it'll be, just be some academic exercise. So therefore, they cry out again to the Lord. And the Lord graciously raises up for them a deliverer, Ehud, son of Gera, Benjamite, a left-handed man. See, there's a thing about this left-handed man. Uh, the, the Hebrew says, bound up in the left hand, or in the right hand, bound up in the right. So he's left-handed. And that's either because of a deformity, uh, a malady, something. He cannot use his right hand for fighting. Everybody back in that day was a right-handed fighter. If you weren't right-handed, you weren't a fighter. So that's a significant, anytime the Bible mentions that, because there's a few times, there's another time when there's 600 guys that are left-handed. That's a significant thing, because it's unexpected. In this context, it's kind of implied that he's not able to use his right hand. Because what we'll see in just a second is Eglon is totally comfortable with this guy. So God uses the weak and the unassuming. And why does God do that? Why does God use me? Why does God use you to shame the strong, the people that are just naturals, and also to bring glory to himself and to encourage his people to faithfulness? See, guys, we are encouraged when we hear the stories of how God used you. God used you. God used you. We as pastors are super encouraged when we hear those stories. And guys, around the table, we're, we're encouraged. Our home groups are encouraged. Our church is encouraged. That's why we do the videos and show what God is doing at Christ Chapel so that you can see that God really is at work. If you've been siloed and you don't, you're like, well, I know I like this place, but I don't really know what's going on. You get to see it and you get to be encouraged in your faith. So Ehud's up in Jericho. I don't really ever want to go to Jericho. Aside from the fact that it's cursed, it seems like there's a lot of fighting that always goes on there. It doesn't seem like a very safe place to be. So the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, because that was the deal. We conquer you, you give me money. 
And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Isn't that how you want to go down in history? And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, the king commanded, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came into him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. When has a message from God ever gone well for the oppressors of Israel? Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, it never went well for them. So, but, you know, in true fashion, if you have a message from God, that's a big deal. He rose from his seat, Nehud reached with his left hand and took the sword off his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. Not only did Ehud feel cool, he had to get out of there. Then Ehud went out of the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. He had to go. Man, y'all ate your breakfast already, right? That's gross, man. But he had a message from God. If you oppress God's people, you will pay the price. That's always the case. Because what does God's word do? God's word is powerful. Sharper than a two-edged sword from what I hear. It creates from nothing. God spoke and the universe became. It destroys on command. It gives life and it takes life. It provides and it reveals truth to us. God's word is powerful. But guys, the final message from God is death. All right? We're going to have all kinds of messages throughout our lives. But at the end, all men die. All men face the judgment. And all men at that day will know. They may suspect before, but they will know on that day that God is both king and judge of everything. Guys, we will know, if there's a doubt in our mind now, we will know for fact, for sure, on the day of our death. So this combined quote, Spurgeon and David Guzik say, The final message from God is death. Many preceding messages come from his word and the pulpit, which is also the presentation of his word. And we should set our houses in order to hear the other messengers of God before he sends his last most potent one from which you cannot turn away. We will all die. Heed the message of God because the message of God is for you. Anytime the word is opened up, that is a message for you for faithfulness to God. You've got opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Trust in him. Trust in the one true God. Seek him and turn your life in his direction. Avoid the discipline of God by following in obedience to him because of who he is. 
So Ehud escapes and he says, follow after me to the people of Ephraim. For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. See, the motto of the United States Army Infantry School is follow me, because that's what a leader does. He says, follow me. In that case, it's follow me because I'm in charge and that's how we're going to fight the battle and win. In our spiritual lives, true leaders say, follow me because I follow after God. And you know what the response is? We always had this kind of cadence in, uh, in the leadership. It said, follow me. And the people that were supposed to follow say, lead the way. Guys, there's a, there's a, a two-pronged effort here. There's the effort of the man saying, follow me. And there's the effort of the man saying, I need to follow you because you know what you're doing. And that's a mark of humility. Guys, spiritual leaders are invaluable. The people that are wisely and accurately following God are the people that we should be running to and saying, how do you do that? Show me your philosophy. Show me how you read your Bible. Teach me how to pray. But we're so prideful so often that we don't want to learn from the people that, that are around us. We want to pretend like we've got it all together. But like Paul says over and over again, and it's not a boastful thing. He says, follow me as I follow the Lord. I think I'm doing this well. And that is a kindness. That is a loving, friendly thing to do. To say, brother, do you want to learn how to read your Bible? Do you want to know how to pray? Do you want to know how to love your wife and children well, according to God's standards? Guys, we need to rely on one another. We should be doing both of those things. Whether you've been in the faith for a long time, or you've been in the faith 35 seconds, you should be finding someone that knows more than you and someone that knows less than you and helping them along the way. So peace cannot last without steadfast intergenerational faithfulness to God. See, Othniel and Ehud have the longest periods of peace in the entire book of Judges. And it only lasts as long as they live. See, we enjoy rest and peace with God through our great and perfect deliverer, Jesus. No matter what all the other deliverers do, they will all fall short of Jesus, our perfect deliverer. Doesn't Jesus always do it better? You know, we think we have some holy men of faith and then Jesus comes on the scene and lives perfect life. When the people try to stump Jesus, they've got the best answer. They've got the best question and Jesus' answer is better. God uses all these wonderful men. God uses you. But we have a greater deliverer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do next, we're going to remember that so what you have before you is little communion cups. The top is kind of hard to get to the wafer. So start fumbling with that. And for the next two minutes, while you're trying to get, out, get the wafer out, because it may take the full two minutes to do, especially for some of you guys, spend that time in quiet. 
expressing gratefulness to the Lord. Spend that time with eyes open praying and thinking about all the things that you are grateful for the Lord's deliverance. And if there's anything that you need to confess and repent of, it says repent and believe and you'll be saved. You'll be forgiven today. And I'll close us in prayer and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are kind to us. Thank you that you love us so much that you send messengers to point us back to you. Thank you that though we forget time and time again, you're gracious enough to bring us along to help us to remember. God, as we take this ordinance together, help us to finitely recall how you've delivered us and express our gratefulness and our worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, man, Jesus said, take this. This bread is my body. The Son of God came down in flesh, just like you and me, and lived a perfect life. So he said, take this and remember that. And he took the wine. He said, this is my blood. That perfect son of God died and rose again. Our deliverer is still alive. The peace that comes through him lasts forever. There is no end to his peace. He is the prince of peace. So drink this and remember him. So here are our discussion questions for today. Specifically, how do you forget the Lord? Guys, I want you to make sure that you talk about yourself. This isn't about my cousin or whatever or generics. Think about specifically, how do you forget the Lord? And how can you remember him this year? What ways do you feel inadequate for the ministry God raised you up and empowered you to? Guys, you have been called by God and empowered by his Holy Spirit. How do you, but how do you feel inadequate and disregard that? And do you consciously enjoy that peace and rest that comes from eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. If you, do you have it? Do you enjoy that? If so, why or why not? Father, please bless this uh, discussion time. Uh, reveal our hearts. 
and help us to learn and grow and experience the peace and rest that comes from you. In your name, amen.